Hello, filmmakers and watchers and lovers of and dreamers and thinkers about film. On today's episode of How to Make a Film, Dan and I talk about exposition. What it is, how generally terrible it is, but how effective and necessary it sometimes can be in films like Master and Commander, or how Steven Spielberg charmingly avoided it in Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is exposition, by the way, which is why I'm hanging from a cliff. Because you may be so frightened that I'm going to fall, you won't notice I'm telling you a bunch of boring things. And exposition, exposition, this is the sound of me falling to my death. From exposition, we move to inciting event as we learn how being fired by his agent was Dan's call to action, his invitation to Hogwarts, you're a wizard, Harry, and forced him to make the choice to make his film hold Excalibur himself. Dementors and Voldemorts be damned. Oh, that really hurt when I fell from that cliff and almost died at the bottom of this cavern. Now where am I? And lastly, I'll give you a secret to making a viral video on TikTok that no one has ever talked about before. Exposition, inciting events, trick chalk tricks, and a triangle of sadness, among other how-to-make-a-film type things. My name is Sean Hurley. I'm a playwright and TV show staff writer and sitting directly across the storm-ravaged, and as yet still fish-filled depths of the Atlantic Ocean for me is Dan Freeman, writer, director, huggable human, and the benevolently malevolent benevolent dictator of the film in progress, Hold Excalibur. So I have been watching Master and Commander, hmm. uh, the sort of seafaring. It's it's a film, right? Yeah. I've read some of those novels by Patrick O'Brien. Yeah. Yeah. And what are the novels like? Uh, they're very they're very stately. They're they're books that people who love the sea, people who have ships and sailboats, uh, really embrace. There's a novelist, uh, James Salter who is a, not only a novelist, but he's also a pilot. A, I think he's deceased, but he, he loves airplanes. And so all of his books have airplanes in them. And a lot of his fans are like airplane enthusiasts and pilots and things like that. Patrick O'Brien is sort of similar. He's kind of this maritime novelist with an old-timey feel to him, but also kind of a classical quality. So he, he almost feels like a classical novelist. Mm. So you've read a few of them. So you're recommending? Or? I, I think I've read like three or four of them. I went on vacation once. I was probably in my 20s. And there was this old guy who I kept seeing at the beach and he was always reading these Patrick O'Brien books and he always had a different one. And he was a very nautical sort of man, as I recall, like he seemed like a ship captain himself. And it just got me interested in what that experience would be like. So I started reading them. I like them, but I'm not really a ship captain myself. And so it was kind of it was like a nice thing to visit, but I didn't need to live there in the way that some people might really like to live, uh, you know, always on a fictional boat on the real seas. So yeah, Master and Commander, even why do you, you saw the movie, right? The Russell Crowe film? Yeah, I must admit, I'm, I'm halfway through it. I was, I was just watching it on my laptop while I was washing up. Uh, and I didn't really expect it to be, I have seen it before, I saw it when it came out. And I didn't expect it to be good, really, or it didn't strike me as remarkable when I saw it. But it's really good. It opens in a really sort of portentous way. It's very deft with its scene setting. And I sort of thought, do I want to see Russell Crowe swaggering? 
and <laughs> you know sort of i understand yeah but my answer to that is always yes <laughs> but he doesn't swagger i mean he's good in this he's he's understated i mean you know what you're going to get you're going to get this sort of noble figure who's mm. a, a father and a friend to all these men as well as their commander and, and all that and but it's very brilliantly done really i think that i had the same sort of when you brought up master and commander i was like oh yeah i saw that movie and it was pretty good but I don't think it was that good and I don't think I'd like to see it again. But I, I feel like that's almost a, a modern vibration that things of the past just don't seem as good as they were anymore. Like if you look at anything or watch anything in the past, somehow it's just not going to be very good. And I, I feel like that's almost the conditional part of our, our modern times is to sort of think that new things are the good things in all ways and old things might be okay, but they're going to be, they're going to suffer from having existed and having been created in the past. Well, it's funny you should say that because another film I saw that I wasn't expecting to like is The Lost Boys. Mm. Did you ever see The Lost Boys? Yeah, with Jason Patrick and Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. When did you see it last? I saw it when it came out and that is all. But I thought it was very, very cool mm. back then. That was a very, very early Dracula movie and it was you know teenagery and it was pre-twilight but it still had that kind of like pop culture-y vampire sensibility to it and it was cool and there's rock and roll and sunglasses and stuff like that yeah well let me ask you this what do you think it would be like if you saw it now i think it would be pretty bad like young guns or something like that. <laughs> but i don't know well well, Sean, you're wrong. Is it great? It's great. It is actually great. Yeah, it is really good. Oh, that's so good. I thought I'd sort of watch it, you know, with my son to introduce him to this kind of fun kitsch film that that we watched when we were we were kids. But it it's good. It's actually good, and it's it's funny. You forget how funny it was, and it moves along at a really zippy pace. Hmm. The all the sort of inciting incidents and the things that you know are going to inevitably happen in a vampirish film happened pretty quick so it's not sort of insulting your intelligence saying wow this big event happened that you weren't expecting when obviously you are expecting it yeah you know i rem i remember when it came out and it sort of had the awful sheen of being sort of a, a brat pack teen level like glamour bad movie you knew that people would go see but it probably wouldn't be very good but then i remember the critical reviews of it were actually strong so it was sort of like one of those surprisingly decent exploitation-y type films and i i loved it and I, wasn't there like a really big like musical number towards the end of it or like rock and roll on the beach some big crazy show am i thinking of the wrong movie um, i think oh yeah i mean it, there's a very camp saxophonist at the start sort of semi-naked yes that's it that's what i mean that was, yeah, that was very okay. powerful very powerful scene. Well, my, my wife was was killing herself laughing at that. Um, but it, it, yeah, I don't know whether it was when it was it was in the in the eighties, wasn't it? I think it was the in the eighties it came out. Yeah, it was that when kind of punks uh, in films were always going zigzagging to and fro in jeeps between burning something <laughs> or other and laughing and you know going ha, 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 and swigging from bottles and throwing them and stuff they just swerved into all our movies and destroyed a couple things with their mohawks <laughs> yeah. laughed threw a beer bottle at us and then took off for another movie yeah <laughs> anyway it was it was great i re recommend it and i think there's a good lesson from that film is there are loads of characters in it 
there not loads, but you know, there there are side characters who are fully fledged and do stuff. Not unfortunately the the female lead, but you know, it was it's of its time, you know. But there are not just the good guys and the bad guys. There are other guys too, other people and characters who are interesting. You know, there's the the grandpa who's a sort of comedy character with his going to see the widow Johnson. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, so I would rewatch the Lost Boys. I think it's I think it's really good. It's a tight mm. script. It's really good. You don't have a um a used Blu-ray of that to give away, do you? I was hoping that you I don't. Oh, that would be that would have been perfect, Dan. No, we still haven't got our first review, I don't think. Juliet. Juliet, where are you? Our listener, Juliet. She said she was gonna leave one because she wants that. The lying cheat. She just can't be trusted. Yeah. But okay, so we've got Predator to uh, give Predator. away. And Predator is a great film. But even if you don't like that sort of thing, he's a great director, John McTiernan who also directed, uh, I think it was... Was it Die Hard? It was definitely Die Hard, but also Red October, I think. Oh, yeah. But Die Hard, you know, is, is a masterpiece. I used to have the DVD of that, and the, the extras on that are extremely good. Really, really informative. That's a great film. You know, that's a thing that's that's sort of died for most people, because I think most people have shifted away from, you know, hard media into just the streaming land and we just don't have our our same connectivity to those extras those extras used to be a huge part of the the film experience back when dvds and things like that were around and were the things that we used um you know they'd issue those dvds with these extras on and people would buy them just to get that stuff and and now that's just kind of gone away that's a little bit sad do you watch dvds and blu-rays or very very rarely i mean Mm. um I can't even think the last DVD that I watched because there's no, I don't, I don't know if there's a real reason to. Well, you get the commentary and the, uh, and the extras is the reason I would. It, I guess maybe, maybe, I, I don't know if they're still doing that for modern mm. films. You know, I might want to see that for something really striking. Something like Dune, I'd like to see the extras on, on that. But, yeah, that would be interesting. I mean, any kind of interesting, unusual director that's doing stuff, mm. you know, like a Wes Anderson or like, uh, the guy that does those like midsummer the the horror movies yeah you know where i feel like oh this movie is so amazing and strange or different or there's something really striking or beautiful about it i'd love to know a little bit more but that doesn't come around that often what about yorgos lanthimos have you seen have you seen the the favorite and like the lobster or and yeah no i i I haven't seen that, no. Uh, I recommend that. That's great, The Lobster. Yeah. I mean, that's really special. That's something very unusual and different. And then there's the other Swedish director who did the old men trying to fumble for names. Uh, The uh, Swedish one aboard a ship. I can't remember it, but it was quite recent. Oh, yes. That is a tremendous movie. And I can't remember what it's called because I'm old. Oh, The Triangle of Sadness. Yeah, that's it. It's a great name as well, (laughs) The Triangle of Sadness. Yeah. Uh, that is, that, that was one of the more striking films I've seen in the past couple of years. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it, like, I don't know if it's like a, a success. It's sort of like this flawed masterpiece. And I don't know if it's flawed because I'm flawed rather than it's being flawed. But, um. Why is it flawed? Why would you say it's flawed? It may be because I wanted it to hit me on some emotional level. And I don't know if it did. It hit me on a lot of different intellectual mental levels psychological levels but i don't think it really ever touched my heart (laughs) and which is okay and i don't know if that's a requirement of art but i feel like 
it just, it's one of those things that I was just like, I was really blown away and I was sort of left cold, which isn't an awful experience. You know, I thought, I thought it was terribly inspiring because it was so free. It was a very free movie. Like, <laughs> it's the sort of movie you can see and you go, oh, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> I can make whatever movie I can do this way or that way. I can have everybody start throwing up. I can have it be incredibly comic and the humor can be, you know, just bathroom humor. And then I can go completely off the rails into something, you know, obtuse and hard to understand and then end up in a sort of fable. And so I just thought it was just a pretty stunning and sweeping and bizarre and personal story and real work of art, but it did it did sort of leave me, you know, shivering a little bit at the end with a lack of humanity, maybe. That's really interesting because that's how I think your writing works to me because I'm I'm so conscious of, of how it's coming across when I write something. I'm thinking, is that funny? Is that, oh, is that you know, from every word. And I always envy the way that that sort of freedom that you have you just write it and it just comes out and that's how it that's how it is and you're not sort of constantly questioning it and i think that um, comes from you know for example like when you're writing and you're thinking about is you know is this funny or you know you you have a a history of being a funny person you know you were a comedian still are you write comically you know and that kind of is sort of a thing that i think you became known for but i spent a lot of time writing purely for myself and never thinking it would be used for anything or also thinking it couldn't be used for anything but still liking to do it. And so I, I, I sort of developed without any pressure for it to be anything other than itself. So I had enough time, I don't know, just to find that freedom and to have that be the only thing of value <laughs> that I really can offer because um, no one was ever paying me. Mm, yeah. I mean, I'm constantly um, <laughs> thinking about <laughs> how to fund my work. So, uh. speaking of that, why don't we? Um, you know, one thing I was wondering: we've talked about different places in the filmmaking process. You know, what do you do when you're here? Like, when? Uh, how do you do the casting? Um, but we've never spoken about your humble beginnings, uh, like the beginnings of Holix Caliber. How did you go from writing various, you know? screenplay scripts and submitting them to agents trying to get things published just thinking you know what i want to make my own uh movie how did how did that happen what was the what was the moment of realization and then what was the first thing you did to sort of make make this dream come true <laughs> oh god can you even remember was it too long ago i, I mean one thing that happened was my agent dropped me Ooh. and and i was so you know, I was so gutted by that. And, and my wife took me to the pub and she said, what was, what was he doing for you anyway? And I started thinking, actually nothing. <laughs> and actually, I think this is a, a truism that certainly for me anyway, you start off, I was always worried about, is my stuff good enough? Is it any good? Constantly. And even if people said very kind things about it, mm. it just didn't, didn't make the difference to me I imagine if you have low self-esteem or something, then no matter how much people praise you, it doesn't have an effect unless you unless that sort of thing inside you is fixed. I don't know, but I'm I'm not saying that was what was wrong with me, but I I just I didn't know if it was good enough, and it, I was constantly constantly thinking, is this worth putting? Am I wasting everybody's time? Am I you, you know should I be doing this? And then mm -hmm. this agent dropped me, and I just thought I can either take this as, as, as kind of the end of things, or I think, 
actually, I, I don't really care if it's good enough. I just, I'm not sort of doing anything bad. I'm just putting my art out there to either be liked or not. Right. So I've gone from wondering whether it's good enough and kind of offering it to the gatekeepers, like agents and producers and stuff. And then I sort of thought, no, get out of the way. It was kind of expediency as well, because I'm too old to, to be going around um, with my cap in hand now. I, I want to make stuff. And there are so many people in the way trying to stop you from making stuff. And, <laughs> you know, there really are. I mean, there are people going, oh, you know. you know." Um, it's, a, it's basically all the people that you need to help you are actually secretly there to stop you. <laughs> You think that they're going to be the ones that usher you through the, this whole hallway of doorways, but they're the ones that are going to show you the doors and just how to, strengthily they can lock them and keep you out. Yeah. Do you think that's true? Do you think that, do you mean that? I, I mean, the, the gatekeeping is very strong. The worst thing I think is just not making a decision. And, and that's what most people aren't good at, you know, right. just make a decision or get out of the way. And anyway, that's what the stage I'm at now We're in a kind of nice way. I mean, I really don't believe in treating people badly and I'm hope I'm always courteous and kind but I get out of the way I'm coming with this film because I just, I don't have, there's no other way to do it. When I started off at the BBC, they said, what kind of director do you want to be? And do you want to be a uh, d Democrat or do you want to be a benign dictator or a dictator? And everybody said, oh, I want to be a Democrat. And some, you know, a couple said benign dictator. And they said, no, nah, you can't do it. Like there's got to be a captain on the ship. You've got to, you're a dictator. That's what a director is and then now i'm sort of taking that to heart i'm really moving like a, a kind mm. of snowplow i would say and i think the nice thing is that that energizes other people mm. and they you know yeah it, it get gets them involved anyway so you're at the pub you've been fired by your agent um <laughs> who you know was really just another one of those people keeping you just outside the doors which is another part of it i feel like there's this there's this kind of moth to flame thing where they're just open enough and inviting enough uh, that they attract all these people that want to get in. And then all these people sort of like just gather around the light of the thing and none of them get in, maybe one or two, but they, but they get stuck there. But what you've done is you've just flown off. And mm -hmm. instead of cap in hand, you just put the cap on your head. <laughs> so you're at the pub, you're sort of mulling over this situation and what to do next. So how did you sort of begin to realize this, turn this into a, a reality? Like, okay, I'm going to make this film. What, what do I do next? Did you, did you have the script? Did you then write the script? Did you find other people? What did you do? I had a, uh, the idea of the script and I was, we actually performed it in front of a, a live audience. We did a live reading of it with actors, which I don't think is normal. We got some feedback, you know, people liked it, but not enough, you know, and I got some feedback saying certain things and it was very useful. So we changed it again and we kept changing it and then once I decided to do it there is kind of boldness in that kind of decision you know where you're going and once you decide you're on that path I suppose other things fall into place it took me a while also to work out the means of doing it and the means of funding it and that's a kind of fluid thing that I've learned from from studying business which there's a thing called agile business, mm -hmm. which is, is what it sounds like, really. You react. So having almost started this project, I have this story that I really want to tell. And I'm doing it in an agile way. In other words, that it's a film 
but it can also be other things. I mean, there's no reason why as a film, it can't also be a live show and maybe an audio production and maybe even a novel as well. So I'm plowing forward with it. And at the moment, we're exploring this means of financing it, which is called uh, equity crowdfunding, which is where instead of going to a large studio, for example, for a million dollars, you go to a million people for a dollar each. But that's crowdfunding. But this is equity crowdfunding. So those people who fund you, give you a dollar each, own a dollar's worth of the company, and then they get profits from that company if it does well. It's kind of brain scrambling. But I'm a great believer in getting feedback, especially on a script. If you're going to build a building, you want the blueprint to be absolutely flawless. And the blueprint for a film is the script. So I've always send the script out to anyone who will read it almost get as much vicious criticism as, as I can get. And as you know, I always ask you to thrash it, thrash it, you do. tell me the bad stuff. You do. You, you want it to be destroyed. Every script you've sent to me, you invite, you know, you just want me to just take a, a sword and an axe and it, <laughs> you want me to tell you how terrible it is and how terrible you are as well. I think I that seems to be a part of it. Yeah. My Uncle Paul said that only a really good friend will tell you when you're going out with a bogey hanging from your nose, or as you in America, I imagine, would say booger. Yes, that's that's how we love to say it. But, you know, you don't want to be polite. No. You don't want to be polite about somebody's script if they're going to spend millions on it. Well, I feel like I understand that that the, the concept of thrashing, but, you know, I feel like if, if there's something good about a story, that in itself is enough. And... The, the stuff maybe that's not working, I would bring it up, but I'm not going to thrash anybody for it or punish them or say, like, you're bad or you're terrible. But I felt like when I first read uh, Hold Excalibur, which I felt like was a couple years ago, I thought it was really very, very strong. And I don't know if I thrashed it. I think I had some questions about characters and I might have been confused about some of the Welsh stuff. Um, but it, it, was, it was far from needing a thrashing. But how long has this whole process been for you? Is it like when you got fired from your agent? Was that two, three years ago? <laughs> oh, yeah. It was, I can't remember even. It was a few years ago. But it wasn't just that. What I was saying was about thrashing is that the pitch deck, which is the document which explains the investment proposition, what are people getting if they invest in your film, that document is something that I've been sending out to people in the, in the past couple of days and just getting their comments on it. And that has been hard work, sending out loads of emails. It's quite mentally straining, but it's been really nice communicating with people who've followed my work and are, whilst criticizing the document, as I've asked, they've been really, really supportive. And uh, so it is really nice to, it's nice to be in touch and interact with people and, you know, receive that kind of kindness Hmm. and people's attention. Some people have given me really detailed notes, Hmm. which I really, really appreciate. And it will only go to making the finished product better. So, so what is the, uh, what is the next step? What's happening in the next couple of weeks? Are there any big hurdles that need to be hurdled or obstacles? (laughs) or events or things happening we have to rewrite it uh, according to this criticism that we've got the notes and so on really yeah well you know adjust it with no point not taking notes of the notes and then we just keep trying to find investment which is is a long a long process we need the main big investors first and uh so it's a 
process of just trying to find them with the which is something I've not done before but I've got um the help of a company who are working with us and I may in fact get them to come on and talk about this process if if we if that would be interesting yeah I think so we need to ask our listeners yeah Juliet. I mean all, all all the people peripherally involved in movie making in any way I think are, are pretty interesting a lot of you know I think we often spend time talking with directors or actors not we but the grand we, um, but there the the whole range of characters and support staff that surround filmmaking is just you know fascinating, and they tell the story of what it is to make a film. Each one, I just feel like anybody that is involved is worth talking to. Yeah, sure. I love enthusiasts. I'll listen to somebody who's enthusiastic about anything, really. Yeah, that's a good point. As long as they love it, they tend to suck you in, don't they? So that's true. Yeah. Um, I've got um, another thing on my list of things to talk about. Okay. I thought that Master and Commander is quite an interesting case because, oh, it's, it's what I was going to want to talk about is exposition. Because in Master and Commander, we are 300 years or whatever away from what's going on. And there are crucial things going on and mm. desperate dilemmas happening for this sea captain. And of course, even if you are a boat person, and I am, you d you've got no idea what the hell is <laughs> happening, really. There are two ships sort of sailing maybe towards each other or maybe away or what you can't, uh, facing in different directions. And one's French and one's English and they're shooting at each other. But the jeopardy isn't really apparent unless you're, <laughs> you know, a nautical history expert. So... Right. There are occasions, and it's not clumsily done, but because I'm, I suppose, because I'm attuned to, to looking at the script and so on, but there's, there's the occasional seaman who will shout out, oh, he's coming up fast, you know, he's coming, up, he's <laughs> coming amidships, that'll be trouble for us, or something like that. <laughs> A sort of narrator telling you what's going on. So that's one way of explaining to the audience what's going on when there's something technical and difficult happening. The other is to have an audience surrogate in there who also doesn't know what's going on. And the most famous example of that, I suppose, is is Scully in Mulder uh, in the X-Files. Oh, right. She always needs to have things explained to her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And uh, in, in this, it's the Doctor. And so there's a really nice relationship between the captain and the ship's uh, surgeon. And uh, they're obviously really old friends and sort of like uh, Kirk and Kirk and McCoy, maybe. But the doctor will ask, you know, <laughs> poignant questions at useful times. And uh, the, the situation is, has to be explained to him. So I think that's a quite a useful lesson that if you're if you want to explain something, you can have uh, a character in the mm. script who doesn't understand, who's in the same position as, as the audience. Do you think you were extra aware of exposition because that's something that you're thinking about in terms of the whole Excalibur script? Like you are keenly aware of, oh, I, you know, in scene four, I have this person that's really explaining everything and I, you're trying <laughs> to figure out how not to do that? Or is exposition just something that you're, you know, generally aware of as you move through your uh, watching experience? I think, no, that's a strange question. I mean, are you aware of exposition? I don't. Only if it sticks out, you know, if it's... No, I mean, in your work, are you... Um, are you as you're writing. And I'm, I'm going to say I don't think you are. No, I don't. No. I think because to a certain extent, I am an in the dark kind of a writer. So I prefer when people don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> 
a little bit. Like I like to begin things in medias ray and all that stuff where, you know, you're thrust into a strange situation and you don't know what's going on. I always, I always say that if, if something's worth saying, don't say it. <laughs> you know, the audience will work it out. Yeah, I, I think that the thing with exposition is if it's not working or if it's badly done, the film comes to a halt during those moments when it's happening hmm. because it just doesn't feel integral to the storytelling or to the characters or to the action. It's sort of like everything in the movie stops and somebody says, you know, there's a baby falling from that building. And if that happens, the world's going to blow up. It's, and then everything stops and then it picks up again afterwards. But I think for the most part, most exposition, even if you can notice it, is pretty well integrated into story and it may stick out a little bit, but it's usually set within conflict or, or it's like that, that guy on the ship yelling out, they're coming about midships. You know, it's, <laughs> if you have somebody who's terrorized in presenting exposition, you know, that's about the best case. Or if you have somebody really, you know, lovely and intriguing and intelligent like Scully asking about it, you know, you're like, yeah. I want to know too, Scully. Mm. Um, so you, you can really make us fall for exposition by having it either be shouted in our faces by someone who feels like they're about to die or just lulled into it um, by means of like a friendly stand-in like Scully. You know, if you, I think you're better off. There's probably situations where you do need to say stuff maybe, but, you know, you're better off, I think, saying instead of Mulder saying Tombs is coming, he has the ability to get through small spaces. If he says Tombs is coming, shut that window. Now, you don't know why you've got to shut the window, but, mm. but you get you get, you do really. I mean, right. you, know, you know the important stuff, that he's bad and he's, he's dangerous. And that's, you know, the emotion. Right. And with exposition, I think the, uh, the one rule I, I would suggest is don't put it all in at once. They don't need to know it now. You get these lines in scripts, like, for example, I'm going to meet Professor Jones. Oh, Professor Jones, the leading expert in architectural. <laughs> no, you don't need to know that. You can say, I'm going to meet Professor Jones. Cool. That's good. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, you could have, he's giving a lecture. Okay. So then you get, he's, he's giving a lecture on the Parthenon or something. And then you get the idea, you know, they don't need to know everything at once. No, I mean, you, you, they tell you who Indiana Jones is by letting us see how fascinated he is by the history he's teaching and then we get to see as he's kind of scrambling together all of his parchments and and papers and he's sort of like this this eccentric archaeologist so they that's like storytelling exposition we're learning all about his character but nobody's telling us yeah and that's probably the the best form of it if you can show the character rather than have somebody say well this is dr jones etc as you're as you were alluding to but sometimes you can't do that because that, that's like a, that's a time consuming scene. You know, it takes a while. It's very pleasant, you know, and then there's that woman who closes her eyes and it says, I love you on the back of her eyelids or something like that. Yeah. Um, Isn't that a lovely little wrinkle of fairy dust? It's weird. If you think about that scene, if it didn't have that sequence with that woman doing that, I don't know if the sequence sort of worked. Hmm. It's, it's sort of like a little confection is being made and the confection is who is Indiana Jones. It's our first meeting with him. Um, and the confection requires these like three or four ingredients. And that's like one of the, that's that little bit right there 
is a crucial, crucial ingredient because you can tell that all the women in the class love him and have crushes on him. And then you also realize he's so lost in his world, he doesn't, he hardly even understands mm -hmm. it. He sees it, and he, but he, he can't process it because he's so preoccupied. Mm -hmm. It's just lovely. And then there's the kid who leaves him an apple just as his last flourish. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing about that is, what's the purpose of the scene is to introduce us to Indiana Jones, tell us, tell us who he is. So we could do that, you know, we don't need to have all that, the eye flutter and the apple and thing. We don't need that to show us who in Indiana Jones is. The point about that is the filmmakers thought about every possible iota of enjoyment that they can give us in that scene. Mm. It's funny, it's informative, it's dynamic. I mean, it furthers the action. Mm. All the exposition is in movement. I mean, one of my pet hates is where you have a character sitting on a beach or something and another character comes and finds them and sits down and then you get a bit of exposition. That's where you get the, the exposition dump. And so, as you say, it stops everything. And what you want to do is have the exposition during a, a sword fight, have them falling off a cliff. And the efficiency of that scene is is brilliant and communicating with any sort of performance or or show like that is is a conversation with the audience and you're putting everything you can into that mm. that entertainment in every possible way and that includes how things are framed and shot it's maximum effort so when someone's paying their 15 quid or whatever it is to go to the cinema you're giving them that mm. you've put maximum effort into it. you've gone down every possible avenue you can mm. to entertain them and you're giving them credit for intelligence. I feel like that one sequence kind of almost tells the story of that whole movie to a certain extent. I feel like mm. you could probably go sequence to sequence in that film and, and realize that each sequence is equally charming. Like each little section has been care took in these different quadrants to give you this kind of maximum sense of warmth charm, intrigue, curiosity, and sort of like just this like heartfelt relationship to what you're experiencing. And it's really, I, I don't know, it's a sort of a magical Spielberg-y type level of care. But I think that's why that movie was so powerful for people is because every single sequence had this charm. It wasn't just, you know, driving through story. It was that each sequence was this juggling act of different balls that you hardly could see. But just ended up being completely and fully charming. Yeah, I think that's the nail on the head there. I think it's charm, isn't it? It's it's absolutely delightful. That I wish we had a, a Blu-ray uh, of this to give away. <laughs> we'll have to figure this out. Well, maybe we will, but uh, I think this week's Blu-ray is going to be, um, yeah, I can't remember to say Predator. Maybe we'll just keep it at that forever because we'll never get a good review. It could be always be... That'll be sad. I think Juliet... Juliet, write us a review. Otherwise, we will we'll be lost. You, you first review, the, and it's got to be unrealistically laudatory. It's got to be, I mean, these these guys, they saved my uh, kitten's life, that sort of stuff. We want it to be absolutely outrageously positive. And for that, for the first review, you get Robin Hood, you get Predator, Blu-rays, and you get Sean's Age of Ultron Blu-ray. That's a lot. Hey, I want that review. I want that review. That's a lot of... My self-esteem needs that. That's a lot of winning. I was, you know, the, on a slightly more serious note, I would say that if you enjoy something, 
enjoy it loudly otherwise it'll disappear quietly and a couple of people have taken the time to say some really lovely things about this Hmm. um, podcast and it really did hit home i was cheered by them so uh, thank you oh thank you to them thank you and uh can i tell a brief uh tiktok story what's tiktok 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 doesn't seem very good you know that's sort of sort of dance are you doing i'm not doing any dance but i have a semi-viral video out right this moment and it's by pure accident and not only my accident but it's it's an algorithmic accident i believe so i i have like 400 followers on tiktok i was focusing on Instagram for a while because I was just curious. And I was uploading poems and little videos and stories and stuff like that. And, you know, I think I'm too old or too whatever. I'm not really going to make it in the social media land. So I was mostly uploading to Instagram, but I was also then uploading the same videos to TikTok, but not really paying much attention to TikTok. Last week, my son texted me and he, he follows me on TikTok. And he told me to take a look at this one video that I put up, which is called it's called something like, um, this is Eiffel Towering, or how to Eiffel Tower. I, in the video, what I do is I propose that people engage in these three different sort of actions. Uh, it's, it's sort of like an art or writing exercise. Uh, it involves a physical activity like walking or running, an art activity like writing or something else that you can do well, that you're proficient in, and then engaging in a third art activity that you're not so good in. Because if you don't know, I like to run a lot and I like to run in mountains and I sometimes will run up mountains and at the top I'll just sit there for a while and I'll write. Sometimes I'll write a little poem. But I've been wanting to paint for a little while. I thought, oh, I could uh, I could run up a mountain, I could write a little poem, and then I could paint a painting. And That'd be sort of an interesting video of sorts. So I filmed myself doing it, as, and I called this Eiffel Towering because the Eiffel Tower was built in three separate sections. Okay, so the video, I ignored it. My son texted me and said, you know, why is this video getting so much attraction? And it had like 100,000 views at that point. And all my other videos have like 200 views. Nobody really watches them. Um, but as it turns out, Eiffel Towering is a terribly dark and naughty um, (laughs) thing that uh, my son looked it up and he knows what it is, but I don't want to know what it is. (laughs) But it's it's an awful, awful thing. But at the same time, my video, which now has 220,000 views, uh, which is about running up a mountain and writing a poem and then painting a painting at the top, my sort of definition of Eiffel Towering is now combating the awful definition of Eiffel Towering. And my hope is that maybe I'll be able to defeat it and I'll <laughs> win in the online <laughs> urban dictionary that someday it will read my version of what Eiffel Towering is. And so what this means is all these people that maybe are sort of interested in deviant behaviors are ending up seeing my video about running up mountains and writing poems and painting paintings. I guess what, what I'm thinking is, is that the video itself is not very good. I find the concept cringy. Like I, I almost took it down. Um, cause I, I think it's a lovely, lovely idea. I think it's great. It's a great idea. Well, you know, things that we do make us cringe, you know, like looking yeah. at yourself in the mirror or something like that, or pictures of yourself. To me, it's just kind of cringy. I think it speaks to sort of the, um, 
the impossibility of purposefully moving into social media and trying to, you know, generate some sort of like my best videos, the ones that I would say are the best have the least views <laughs> and the ones that I think are the worst and the least of anything, you know, are, it's, it's this inverse ratio. So I have no sense of how anything really works. Mm. So uh, my advice is to find a, a deviant sexual terminology, something that you know, you don't even know what it is, but then make a really sweet and lovely video and come up with your own definition uh, and just, just watch the views skyrocket. There you have it, listeners, on that bombshell. <laughs> That's how to do it in TikTok. Brilliant. That's the only advice I have for social media. And it's terrible. So, should we leave it there? I think we did great. Sure. I think I was great. And that's going to do it for this episode of How to Make a Film. We have now increased the prize pool for the most gloriously stunning review of our How to Make a Film podcast on iTunes. The pile now includes used Blu-ray secondhand copies of Predator, Robin Hood, and Avengers. I'm looking at you, Juliet. Please feel free to email your questions to podcast at secretplanet.co.uk. Sign up for updates on Dan's upcoming film, Hold Excalibur, at secretplanet.co.uk. How to Make a Film was hosted by Dan Freeman and Sean Hurley, produced by Jamie Walsh, edited by Ethan Walsh.